Two Designers Walk Into a Bar is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. For more information about our show or to discover more podcasts you'll enjoy, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Oh, did you hear that? Did I hear Sorry. what? Sorry. Okay, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was uh, talking with my hands and I accidentally hit the piano. <laughs> and, and, and on my headphone, it was like, <laughs> I was like, yeah. I as I was that. saying, ah! <laughs> I love that. It's like if you're, you know, your equipment isn't like, you know, electrocuting you. It's like making it, ambient, you know, musical noises or something. It's overworking. Yeah. Truly yeah. a one man uh, band. It truly is. Hey, everyone. It's Elliot and Todd. Welcome to Two Designers Walk Into a Bar, an ongoing conversation about pop culture and iconic design. Today, we continue talking about the formation of the pop art scene. And the introduction of its greatest superstar. He made the lowbrow highbrow. And along the way, agitated a lot of people. So let's raise our glasses to the master manipulator himself back here in the bar. So today we're talking about uh, the downside of the Silver Factory. This is part two yeah. of our episodes. Um, thank you, listeners, for hanging out for a two-part episode. There's so much out there um, with the factory, particularly in the Silver Factory years, that we broke it into kind of the uh, upside and the downside. So... Uh, today, you know, following the downside, things are going to start to to get a little darker and fall apart. Well, let's jump into this. Okay, so Todd, as you mentioned, we've been talking about this over the last couple of episodes, and you you've painted this picture that it was sort of this. I don't know this fun house, right? This sort of drug ridden, <laughs> yeah. yeah, coated in silver. This this medieval sort of court of lunatics. It's it's sort of like Andy Warhol was the king i guess and there were any number of jesters running around right so we have sort of this puppet master drella and and these hangers on who are sort of coming and going and they're a mix of artists but also junkies and just general crazy people and friends of friends of friends kind of thing and he's just sort of the eye of the storm right he's just sort of watching the shit Mm -hmm. unfold Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and uh kind of enjoying it and you you you're exactly right it was this open free form experimental place this ongoing happening and it was unchecked and it was great until it wasn't and underscoring all of that was Andy's fawning and then disinterest with uh people sort of like the, they had novelty because they were new the novelty yes. wears off, and he just sort of casts them aside, essentially. 
Well, not even kind enough to cast them aside. It just kind of... It's, it's like he tells them how great they are. And, oh, yeah, we should do a movie. We should do this. You're so great. You're so wonderful. And then they keep showing up and hanging out with him. But he's like he's really on, distant. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Wow. So because he was, he was seen as the arbiter of cool, you know, and he made people famous. And he also, he made a lot of promises that he didn't intend to keep. Yeah, just a lot of lip service, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of cruel because, not particularly because he was cruel, but he just couldn't deal with confronting or disappointing people. Yeah, like the social anxiety that you've talked about. Yeah, yeah, it was just easier for him to say, oh, you're great, you're wonderful, that's awesome. And you know, Elliot, all that crazy will get a bit shot. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. (laughs) Yeah, so on June 3rd, 1968, the shooting didn't ultimately kill Warhol, but it certainly killed the factory scene as we knew it. Okay, so not everybody knows this story. You know, I think there are probably a lot of people who are unaware that Andy Warhol had been shot. Like, you know, they know Mm -hmm. he died Mm -hmm. in the 80s. But, uh, okay, so how did he... How did he come to get himself shot? Like, what's this story? (laughs) How did that happen? Yeah, I understand, obviously, this rotating cast of characters would... It was getting a little crazy. Yeah, right? it would have made it easy enough for people to have access to him, I guess. But, you know, I would say by and large, they probably also saw him as their sort of social teat a little bit, right? So it's yeah, like you're not yeah. going to want to disrupt that when you're suckling at it, right? So what? who did he cross and, and how did <laughs> okay. this all go down? <laughs> all right, all right. Well, I joked about, sort of joked about, in a previous episode that I was leaving some uh, Easter eggs there. And do you recall in the previous episode where I quoted Andy from a documentary referring to the, the sort of free form of the factory? And he says, I got a call from a girl with a script called Up Your Ass. Oh, yeah. He was just enamored by the title alone. Yeah, yeah. And for that alone, he invited her to come up. Well, that person was Valerie Solanas, his would-be assassin. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, okay. So, is that where the gun? Like, did she yes, just okay. show up? Let, like, what? Yeah. Oh well. Okay. It's it, it it's a little bit more than that. Um, but uh, it this was one of those times when you know he kind of kept stringing her along, uh, and when they first met, actually, because of who she was, the way she presented herself, um, and I'll go into that a little bit, because of mainly her script, Up Your Ass, Andy thought she was a cop. Wait, hold on, what? He thought she was a cop and thought it was a setup because his studio had already been raided by uh, cops for lewd and obscene acts. So you know, because it was the like the, the title was so overt, he was like, oh, yes. it's obvious this it, is. It was too crazy to be legit. Yeah, it had to yeah, be a setup. Yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, he was half right. He was half right about the crazy part. But Valerie Solanas was already pretty well-known haunt of Greenwich Village. She was a writer. She had a degree in psychology and attended graduate school at the University of Minnesota and Berkeley. Hmm. She dropped out, found her way to Greenwich Village, as you do, to find your people. And she supported herself by begging and by prostitution. Hmm. Um, She was a self-proclaimed anarchist feminist 
who had also written the SCUM Manifesto. And in this case, SCUM stands for Society for Cutting Up Men. Oh, that's clever. Cleaver, yeah, or, clever. <laughs> oh, yeah, I see what you did there. Yeah. Um, so even among like the Greenwich Village revolutionaries, Solanus wasn't seen as an outsider. Yeah, right? yeah. She was too crazy for the crazy people. Yeah, yeah. And during her brief uh, period in the Warhol orbit, she had given him her manuscript for the play, Up Your Ass, and whether through miscommunication or hollow promises, she actually believed he would produce it. And she called the factory frequently to ask about the production. So, hey, bef- before we go any further, so with this title, I'm now sort of intrigued. Does this exist anywhere? Can we actually read this thing? You can. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's rambling and kind of nonsensical. Um, the, uh, Andy and his colleagues thought it might even be satire. Um, but no, she was serious. <laughs> okay. Um, but so it's, you know, it, it's, it's not comedy, um, but it, 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 uh, it, it doesn't have a, a foot in reality, uh, too much either. Now, huh. again, among feminists, she was really seen as an outsider. So there was a lot of great work being done for the feminist movement at that time. And turns out um, she didn't end up helping them too much. But <laughs> so here's what kind of, you know, lit the fuse, if you will. She kept calling. She couldn't. And then, you know, ultimately she couldn't get Andy anymore. It was just excuses like he's not here, whatever. So eventually to kind of quell her aggravation, he offered her a job as a typist at the factory because he thought her manuscript was typed very well. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And you can guess she didn't take kindly to that and thought he was just trying to steal her work. Mm, Okay. So... By the fall of 1967, her militancy had grown tiresome to all people involved. And it had kind of gotten old from amusing to annoying for the factory. And they basically kicked her to the curb and said, like, you know, just don't come back here anymore. Yeah, uh, If we can find your manuscript, we'll send it back to you. But it's, we don't have it. It's lost or whatever. She, of course, took that as more like they're trying to steal it and without me involved. And she would go on to like be pretty vocal about being kicked to the curb. Uh, she even called like the factory dwellers the stupid stars, <laughs> uh, which I think is kind of funny. And she called uh, <laughs> Warhol himself a vulture and a thief. Wow. Um, yeah, so you know, she struggled um, with mental illness. Uh, if if that wasn't clear already, and uh, she would go in and out. Uh, trying to get uh, help. Um, as I said, she was uh, she was uh, a street dweller. She would earn enough money to live at the Chelsea Hotel for a night, and they would kick mm-hmm. her out for mm-hmm. for being weird. So she she really was in this spiral. Um, and uh, unfortunately, uh, I think Andy kind of propelled that spiral a little bit more. But okay, back to the stupid stars. Um, Not to be outdone, uh, the master of the one line, Andy, actually described her as a hot water bottle with tits. (laughs) 
What does that even mean? <laughs> I don't know, but, you know, uh, it. <laughs> unfortunately, it, it says a lot about both him and her, doesn't it? <laughs> I guess. Yeah, yeah. So, hot water bottle with tits. Very poetic, Todd, I think. Yep. Uh, and you know I know poetry. You do know poetry, yeah. Oh, all right, all right. Hit me with one of those wonderful Elliot Strunk poems. All right, let me just get my little pocket notebook out here. All right, all right. All right. Do here. I need my bongos, or are you just no, going to no, do no, this no. acapella? No, no, I'm just going to freestyle this. You ready? Okay, I'm ready. All right. Roses are red. Mm-hmm. Violets are blue. Mm-hmm. It's time for you to buy me a drink and maybe some snacks, too. Uh, that <laughs> I really thought you were going to hit us with one more, uh, a little bit more original than that, Elliot. But, uh, well, I mean, all right, we'll t- you know, I, I need the proper s- stimulation. Okay, okay. Um, well, then, why don't we take a quick break, be back here in a minute, and you can go grab your stimulation. Hey nerds, I'm Sarah, the Paper Nerd, and if you've ever wondered what goes into that greeting card you just sent or received, well, quite a lot. Get your paper fix on the paper fold where I host an enchanting mix of personalities and players all nerding out on my favorite topic, stationery. From the designs of our snail mail communications to the precious space created when two people correspond, there's a lot to cover. So come grab a seat in the stationery community's only five-star paper salon, the Paper Fold, now part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Hi, we want to take a moment to mention that if you're enjoying this episode, we have an archive of topics ranging from the Olympics to movie posters. Think Ghostbusters. Iconic images. Think Bigfoot. Punk music. The Ramones. Saturday morning cartoons. The Pink Panther. And failed products like OK Soda. Visit our website at twodesignerswalkintoabar.com for full episode notes and visuals the latest blog content, and to sign up for our newsletter. Follow us on social media. We can be found on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Find the links on our website or search using the phrase, two designers walk into a bar. Most importantly, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps more people like you find podcasts like this. And tell a friend about us. Send them a link to our podcast from your listening platform of choice. And if you're inclined, buy our merchandise, stickers, coasters, magnets, t-shirts. We're designers. We make good stuff and it helps support the show. Get in touch. Use the contact form on our website or send an email to hello at two designers walk into a bar.com. We read every message we get honest. And we're available for speaking gigs. Email us to learn more. Okay. Now back to the bar. Portions of the next segment contain descriptions of gun violence, mental illness, and self-harm some listeners may find disturbing. Okay, Todd, so before the break, the tension was building between Valerie Solanus and Warhol. Uh, obviously, there were some accusations being thrown around, some names <laughs> being thrown around. Yeah. Uh, but we still haven't gotten to the shooting. So how did that actually go down? Okay. So it was about 4 p.m. the afternoon of June 3rd, 1968. And Warhol was on his way 
to the factory. This was at the Union Square version. They had moved out of the Midtown one. Mm -hmm. And he found her outside the building, just waiting. So this says a little bit about kind of the awkwardness of the relationship, but also he didn't say, forget it, you're not riding up with the, in the elevator with me. They rode the elevator up to the sixth floor together. And he, he later wrote that during the elevator ride together, she was bouncing slightly on the balls of her feet and twisting a brown paper bag in her hands. And oddly enough, inside the brown paper bag, she carried a 32 semi-automatic Beretta and a 22 revolver and a big old load of paranoid grunge and anger to go with it. <laughs> That's a hell of a, a brown bag, yeah. <laughs> It was it was packed full. You couldn't put anything else in that. Sounds like it. So once inside, I I get the impression like, you know, they rode up in the elevator. It was, you know, no one was probably talking. When the doors open, uh, Andy kind of took off and left her there to meet with a small group of people, which... You know, he, his curator and critic, uh, Mario Amaya, and uh, his um, collaborator, Paul Morrissey, were there. Mm -hmm. um, that was Warhol's executive producer. Um, I think he's fairly well known. Yeah. So Andy kind of dashes off uh, to take a phone call. And he's chatting on the phone, and, and the others are kind of, you know, trying to chat a little bit with Valerie. Um, but pretty quickly, she reaches in her bag and fired the first shot from her Beretta. And then another shot, and two shots missed Andy. Um, you know, I imagine it was across the room, right? But the third one hit him, and he falls to the ground and just, you know, <laughs> he's been shot, right? So he's cowering. He smashes into the desk. He hits his head. There's blood. And eventually she comes right up, presses the gun pretty close against his side, just under the armpit, and shoots. And this is the bullet that went through and exits through his right lung, damaging all sorts of organs along the way. Good Lord. Yeah. So right then, um, as luck had it, her luck, the elevator doors opened again. She dashed and she was gone. And uh, our friend Billy Name from the haircutting party, he writes, uh, and this is a quote, I came out of the dark room and I found him shot and everyone was in shock. I went to him, and he was in a pool of blood. I held him and started crying, and he said, Oh, Billy, don't make me laugh. It hurts too much. <laughs> really? <laughs> really? Okay. Um, so, obviously, everyone was in shock, probably high, too. Yeah, right, yeah. Here's a little bit of tidbit for you. It took nearly 20 minutes for the ambulance to arrive at Union Square. That's crazy. It's a long time when you think about it now, but... Here's the reason. Oddly enough, Warhol was shot just over a month before New York City would implement its 911 system. Ah, okay. So, you know, bad luck, right? And anywho's, at Columbus Hospital, Warhol was declared clinically dead for two minutes. And imagine this scene. The waiting room was filled with factory members. They were dressed in their avant-finest. And they were vying for the swarming reporters. You know, these are the people reporting what happened right. on the news. Right. Right? Oh, I can only imagine it's probably a circus. Yeah, it, it, you know, it had to be a circus. Billy Name was probably coating everything in tinfoil he brought with him. Probably. Right, right, right. 
And so Andy would go on through many surgeries that day, and he would end up staying in the hospital for two months. Okay, so in your research, I want to return to this spectacle that's unfolding in this. <laughs> did you find any news footage online of, of these actual interviews? I did not. Uh, oh, but man. you know what? We can keep digging on that because that would be interesting to have. Yeah, yeah. If we find them, yeah, let's throw that up on our episode page. Should be. Yeah, that's okay. Very good. Yeah, we should keep looking for that because that would be uh, interesting to have, wouldn't it? Yep. Um, but yeah, so the um, the hospital uh, thought he was dead. His heart stopped. They massaged his heart. Wow. And took him into surgery, and he, as you know, ended up living. And back to uh, Valerie Solanas after she left the um, the factory. She approached a young cop in Times Square. She handed over the guns, and she just said, he had too much control over my life. Wow. And that was... Okay. Yeah. And so, and then she kind of sat there until, you know, they arrested her, and, you know, she... I, I guess she did tell them enough of what happened, so they would arrest her. Yeah. Um, and Warhol would later say that crazy people had always fascinated him because they were incapable of doing things normally. <laughs> uh, usually they would never hurt anybody. They were just disturbed themselves. But how would I ever know, <laughs> again, which was which? So after the shooting, he started questioning crazy people. <laughs> Oddly enough. Yeah. Yeah, right. The scars from the shooting were both physical and emotional. And I think it's pretty well documented. It had considerable impact on his personal and his professional life. Mm -hmm. He became way more guarded. He abandoned kind of the controversial art and filmmaking to focus on the business. Is that because he thought it would invite too much negative attention? Or what was the... Yeah, and, and he, uh, well, the place became a little bit more locked down. So sure, sure. Uh, there was a lot less crazy flowing in and out. <laughs> That's true. And, you know, he was incredibly successful, probably the most successful living artist at the time. He made business his art. Sure. And at that time, right after that, 1969, he founded what would become Interview Magazine. Mm-hmm. And... Also, at the time, he would revisit the theme of death in his artwork, skulls and guns. Um, and he wrote in his diary at the time, I wasn't creative since I was shot because I stopped seeing creepy people. So, <laughs> um, after he left the hospital, Andy gifted the doctor who saved him a series of Campbell soup cans. Oh, wow. Yeah, I know. And the doctor kept them under his bed because there was no room in the apartment for them to be hung. I'm like, okay, uh, take down the family portrait. Right, you know? yeah, I would have found room. Yeah, gee whiz. I'd have hung them over a window. Yeah, yeah. He actually kept them for, gosh, let me see. That was 60... 69, you said? Yeah, and, and then he actually, they ended up auctioning the paintings off in 2017. It's like 48 years later. <laughs> yeah, 48 years later for an undisclosed amount, but you know it was pretty. You know you know it had to be a good chunk. Yeah, yeah. So at that point, when Andy was out of the hospital, the factory continued as his business operations for Andy Warhol Enterprises, but that the crazy silver factory times, that chapter was closed. Okay, so... We know about Interview Magazine. We know that he did things with skulls and guns. So what happened, for example, to the gal who shot him? Like, 
I mean, did she go to jail? Did she go to a psychiatric hospital? Like She did. Yeah, she did. She walks up to a cop, hands the cop guns, and says, I, I shot Andy Warhol. Yeah, yeah. And, and they're like, um, okay. She went to prison. She was released, oddly enough, just a few years later in 1971. And, uh, you know, not learning her lesson, she continued to stalk Warhol. And really? the idea, yes. Wow. Okay. And the idea that she was out of prison, uh, you know, rightfully frightened him. But it wasn't long before she was imprisoned again. And by the mid 70s, she was out and found herself homeless in New York City. And unfortunately, she continued to have more and more severe mental health episodes. Um, and, and this, uh, I will warn our listeners, the next part is a little graphic, um, but she would continue to uh, really experience these mental health issues. Like she had this paranoid idea that her uterus was a uterine transmitter that was communicating messages to the mob. Oh my goodness. Okay. And and at one point she tries to dig that transmitter out of her body with a fork. Oh, wow. Yeah. Pretty terrible. So in talking about the shooting, uh, from again, Billy names perspective, who was always there. He said, after Andy was shot, he became what I thought of as a cardboard Andy, Mm -hmm. Uh, which, you know, it seems like Andy probably would have liked that as a, as a name. Um, (laughs) Yeah, true. He became less fun and the work became less fun. It was a big trauma and Andy changed. The early years were just thrilling. You felt in your heart and it spoke to you. All this creative work you were doing, it was a wonderful experience. I don't think we will ever have anything like the factory again, at least not in my lifetime. Maybe in other places. It was the era and such an amazing time in New York. Everyone was there and there were all these revolutions. The women's revolution, the black revolution, the gay revolution. We were intellectuals and we just did our own thing for art. So, you know, kind of a good point in time of the late 60s, early 70s, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, some things just can't be duplicated because it's all of these things crossing over and all of these people who happen to be in the same place. I mean, I think Mm -hmm. very Mm -hmm. much like what we talked about with the beats, it's like people didn't set out to exactly make this scene per se, but the scene sort of made itself with the collisions of all this different stuff. Right, right. Yeah, and that's a really good lesson that... I think we can only tell a scene in retrospect, right? Mm -hmm. We can't make it. We can't predict it. Uh, I think if anybody could, Andy was doing that, um, you know, on on purpose. But um, he would go on, obviously. Uh, He would continue to work on art. He would actually start doing a lot more commissions, really just for the money. Um, He would uh, get more heavily into Interview Magazine, and he'd still be a fixture in New York, particularly New York nightlife. Um, I think he was pretty well connected to Studio 54. Sure, yeah. Uh, and and the celebrities there, the, the higher class freaks of Studio 54, <laughs> but nowhere near the freak parade uh, that the Silver Factory was. And, you know, he would 
continue on to have some really famous, influential collaborations with both artists and musicians. And we'll dig into that next time we belly up to the bar. Oh, you just said the magic words. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of going and bellying up to the bar and having fun in the evening, uh, how about I stay here and uh, you slide on over to the bar and uh, pick up uh, our next round? I see where this is going. Yes, I see where this is going. And me without my brown bag of anger <laughs> and paranoia. Well, you always say you appreciate my crazy. I do. I do. I love your crazy. All righty. Um, so this has been great. This is the last of our decline of the Silver Factory. And um, our next episode, we talk a little bit more about uh, still Andy Warhol and the scene around him and how that became um, influential in album cover design. All right. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Up your ass. <laughs> Oh, boy. So, Jim, we got a problem with our podcast. Right. Nobody says it correctly. <laughs> no. Some people say how to fix it. Or how do you fix it? But think of it like this. Whatever the problem, we're in this together. How do we fix it? How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? Yeah. How do we fix it? The solution show from the political to the personal. Practical ideas for creative listeners. How do we fix it? How do we fix it? Ideas that work. That's your radio voice, Richard. Oh, well, I know. <laughs> I love it. I couldn't do it to save my life. Two Designers Walk Into a Bar is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. For more information about our show or to discover more podcasts you'll enjoy, visit evergreenpodcasts.com.